0: good evening and welcome folks to this uh what we hope will be a wonderful panel discussion and conversation with you our plan tonight is to have uh some brief presentations by our panelists whom i'll introduce here in just a minute and uh try to leave a good deal of time for conversation uh with you folks so if you read the the flyer you know that what we're here to do today, and I'll introduce myself here in a minute, so don't fear not about that, but uh, in what ways does piety and the contemplative life encourage or discourage social change and activism? How do liberal and conservative religious traditions integrate or divide the inner life and the work for social justice? And in what ways can social change be a spiritual practice itself? So we've given our panelists uh, three guiding questions. They are, in your tradition, how does the inner life and piety support work for justice in the world? In your tradition, how are the inner life and piety in tension with or separate from the work for justice in the world? And what is an example of a devotional practice from your tradition that connects the inner life with social justice work? So let me introduce the panel, and I'll introduce them in the order that they will speak. Uh, And that will be first David Jaffe, who is a rabbi, author, and social activist, and founder of Kerver Institute. Uh, His book, which is on the back table, uh, that you can uh, purchase uh, from him. Uh, Changing the World from the Inside Out, a Jewish Approach to Personal and Social Change, explores the inner life and social justice activism as an integrated spiritual path. He is an adjunct faculty member at Hebrew College Rabbinical School and served as spiritual advisor at Gan Academy, uh, the new Jewish high school. Uh, Speaking second will be Cheryl A. Giles. And Cheryl is a the Francis Greenwood Peabody Senior Lecturer in Pastoral Care and Counseling and a licensed clinical psychologist. She has been a member of the HDS faculty since 1980, 1997, a core faculty member of the Buddhist Ministry Initiative. Professor Giles teaches courses on spiritual counseling, contemplative care of the dying, and anti-racism. Uh, Students who are preparing for healthcare chaplaincy and social justice are often in her classes, and and she does a great deal of research on the psychology of contemplative care. Uh, Speaking third is Celine Ibrahim. She is the Muslim chaplain at Tufts University and the Islamic Studies Scholar-in-Residence at Hebrew College and Andover Newton Theological School. She is completing a doctorate at Brandeis University in Arabic and Islamic civilizations and earned a Master of Divinity from here at Harvard Divinity School and a bachelor's degree in Near Eastern Studies with the highest honors from Princeton University and she is deeply committed to Islamic scholarship and fostering interreligious learning and environments. Speaking fourth and on the end will be Claire Schaefer Duffy, who is co-founding member of the uh, S.S. uh, Francis and Therese Catholic Worker uh, in Worcester. She's a freelance journalist and staff director of the Center for Nonviolent Solutions, a small nonprofit engaged in peace education in Worcester. The Catholic Worker is a center of anti-war activity in Worcester, and a leading voice in the social uh, in social justice or on social justice issues. Uh, her activities have landed her in jail on numerous occasions. We're glad that you've been released for tonight, Claire, and uh, and for for civil disobedience, and has brought her on peace missions to many parts of the world. And in fact. You're just back from afar, I believe. And finally, I am Dudley Rose, the Associate Dean for Ministry Studies here at Harvard Divinity School. I oversee the Master of Divinity, Divinity program. I've been here since 1987, and my research interests include the life and thought and ministry of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, congregational and institutional leadership, and the use and effect of digital technology and social networking on society, churches, and ministry. David.
1: Thanks, Dudley. We are gonna try to speak for about uh, seven minutes, and so I'm gonna keep my timer here. Uh, thank you all for coming out tonight, and uh, this is a topic very close to my heart. As Dudley said, uh, I have a book that just came out called *Changing the World from the Inside Out* that looks at these issues of the integration of the inner life and social justice. Uh, <clears throat> I want to speak from a Jewish perspective uh, on these issues. Uh, the, um, in the Bible, there really is no separation between uh, the what would we call piety or relationship to God and devotional life and care for the other, and they're sending that out to social justice. Uh, the Ten Commandments are interwoven of, uh, of, of commandments that are about, you have no other gods besides me, you'll keep the Sabbath, keep it holy, and do not kill, do not steal, are all woven together. In the Holiness Code, in Leviticus 19, several verses, uh, come in, do not put a stumbling block before a blind person, you shall be in awe of your God, I am God. Don't stand idly by the blood of a neighbor. I am God. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am God. Always follow. There's an integration there. The one, the concern for relationship with God, concern for relationship with the other, are completely intertwined. The prophets carry this on, Isaiah one and two, Zion will be redeemed through social justice and returned through righteousness. Uh, It cannot be separated. And what he's talking about redeemed there, he's talking about service of the temple and worship in the temple and sacrifice. And so those cannot be separated from social justice. Fast forward 3,000 years and the uh, Pew Research Center, Uh, recently did a survey, which many people are probably familiar with, on religious life in America. Their study of uh, uh, and breaking that out about Jewish life in America showed that 55% of American Jews said that being Jewish is mainly a matter of ancestry and culture, and two-thirds, so 67% of Jews say it's not necessary to believe in God to be Jewish. So a real separation from piety and devotion uh, and to, to, to being Jewish. And again, with Judaism, is not just a religion, we're also an ethnic group and a tribe, and so there's a non-religious element to it, but that did not exist pre-enlightenment. And so that is a, a, a fairly new phenomenon for us. Um, the study also showed that regarding Jewish identity, more than half, 56%, say that working for justice and equality is essential to what being Jewish means to them but just 19% of Jewish adults surveyed, say, observing Jewish law, or halakha, uh, is essential to what being Jewish means to them. So we have a big separation. So again, social justice and living an ethical ethical life was 69%. Those are very strong identity markers uh, for the North American Jewish community, but observance of ritual and devotional life is down below 20%. So there's a big separation. So what happened? Uh, Many things happen between biblical times and now. Um, Two things I want to point out, one, sociological, and one, more religious or spiritual. On the sociological, um, so when, when the Bible was written and Isaiah was speaking, you had a Jewish commonwealth where Jews were in charge of a country and therefore could could talk about social justice and creating a just system of laws and 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 like that after the expulsion from the land of Israel by the Romans in uh, 2000 years ago Jews really lost power as an entity that had the ability to be able to determine uh, what was just or what was not ju- just in a society. And so the Jewish community ended up focusing much in- inward and became much more pietistic and quietist and, and, and focusing more on relationship between human and God and in interpersonal relationships, but, de- but not broader out about justice in the world come the Enlightenment 200 years ago, and Jews were invited back, first by Napoleon and the French, and then throughout Europe, to come and become part of the dominant societies that they had been ghettoized in and kept out of for 1800 years. And the the bargain was, you can come back in, but you need to leave behind a lot of these behaviors, whether it's your dietary laws, your Sabbath observances, those kind of things. And many, many, many Jews took the bargain and said, we want, we want to join this. At the same time, you have an assault on religious belief uh, with the Enlightenment and rationalism. And again, that was very attractive to many Jews. And so what happened during the 19th century is you had many Jews um, just deciding, this is, we'll, take, we'll take the general society over this, and we'll leave this Uh, devotional life behind. This isn't as important to us. So that's on a sociological level to the point that the messianic fervor that was part of the religion for over 2,000 years got transformed into secular causes. And so you have Jews in very large numbers in Europe uh, during the 19th century becoming communists, uh, becoming socialists, and really working for universalistic social change in a very secular way. Again, bringing some aspects of Jewish culture into it, but definitely not devotion and pietism. And then you come to this country in the last 60 years, of the civil rights movement, the women's liberation movement, gay liberation movement, anywhere you look, you're gonna find large numbers of Jews in leadership in these movements, uh, but again, not with any connection to devotion necessarily a few people but not for the most part so we that's i think the enlightenment and the disempowerment of jews and the invitation back into society is a sociological reason for this separation from a, a religious or spiritual within the religion there's a um, we have blessings for uh, all kinds of different actions you do, and the formula for our blessing is "Asher kiddishanu B'Mitzvotav Vitzivanu." Whatever you have, Asher Kidishanu, you have made us holy uh, with your commandments, God, in doing this, in lighting the Shabbat candles, or in doing this activity, or whatever that activity is. Those blessings were, and those blessings really create an intimacy between the person and God saying them. Those blessings were never applied to interpersonal uh, commandments, like giving of what we call tzedakah, giving of charity. Or uh, I'll give you one example on our holiday of Purim, which is a holiday that takes place around March. One of the rituals there is to give, um, give presents of food to other people. And the whole reason for it is to create love and connection and bonds between people in the society. The, there is not a blessing before you do that, uh, do that ritual or mitzvah, as we call it. And uh, there's a lot of discussion why there's not. And the reason given is that if the whole purpose of this commandment, I'm going to go a little bit over. The whole purpose of this commandment is to create love and bonding between people, then to do it because I want to be close to God is going to take away from that. And it's going, I'm going to be thinking about God while I'm supposed to be really thinking about this other person that I'm giving this to. The rabbis, our rabbis who created this, felt that that would be, take you away from the real purpose of the mitzvah. So built into our system, we have a tension of wanting to keep the focus on the interpersonal and a concern that focus too much on God will take away. Um, one of our, uh, uh, our great rabbis, the Alexander Rebbe, someone came to him and said, what's the there's a purpose for everything under the sun. What's the purpose of atheism? And he said, the purpose of atheism is when someone comes and needs help from me, I don't turn to God and say, give them help. I know I have to do it completely myself. So there's a, there's a tension there. Um, what do we do about that? Because uh, the problem with when there's that tension, when you desacralize things, it becomes less important to people for whom devotion is really important. And uh, one example of that is in the 19th century, Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook said, he said, in his town, in his, his small town in Europe, they had synagogues based on different professions. So a hat makers synagogue, a shoemaker's synagogue, and a horse thieves synagogue. Says, <laughs> so okay, there's a problem you know, if we're doing that. But this desacralization of the interpersonal uh, can end up leading to things like that. So it's a problem. Um, So uh, I'll quickly talk about one solution to this. Rabbi Israel Salanter in the 19th century created something called the modern Musar movement. Musar means ethical instruction and spiritual growth. And what he said in the 19th century, he saw the enlightenment coming to Eastern Europe and he said that there's no way this conformist, not really so well educated Jewish community is gonna survive modernity unless they deeply internalize the religion. And so this this Musar movement was designed to help internalize the teachings of our tradition, particularly the interpersonal ethical teachings, as religious obligations. So fair trade deals, treating your workers well, those things. This movement worked on seeing those as devotional, and seeing those that is part of how you serve God and how you internalize our tradition is by doing those things as well. And it was based on character traits and developing traits like trust and courage and patience, and building yourself as a what we call a vessel for God in this world. And that movement was very popular throughout Eastern Europe. With the Holocaust, again, many of our teachers were killed in that. But there's a renaissance of it happening. Uh, in the last 20, 30 years, particularly in North America. And I'll end with one example of how this can work to tie together social justice and inner devotion. Uh, There's a group I'm working with now out in Silicon Valley, a Jewish group that is working on Prop 57. That's a proposition they have that's going to be in the ballot this year to uh, get people out on parole quicker for nonviolent crimes. And it's a very important proposition for the NAACP out there. And the NAACP asked the Jewish community to ally on this and to really help try to pass this proposition. And so what we did was we took the advocacy for this proposition and turned it into how do we make this a spiritual practice? let's take these, these character traits and think, what gets in your way in being able to advocate for this uh, and, and be able to talk to people? And there's a lot of discomfort of letting people out of jail and, and people are scared about that. So people felt nervous in talking to their neighbors about this, so he we said, well, how about courage? Let's work on courage and let's work on trust that this, this is actually gonna work and these, this system when people are gonna get out are gonna be supported, they're gonna be able to do this. So we took some of these character traits, there are meditations that go along with them and people were doing these meditations in the morning. They're then speaking to at least one person a day about Pro 57 and then they're uh, meditating about it and journaling about it. They're meeting with a partner to talk about how it went on that character trait. They're studying sources about these character traits and meeting as a group every two weeks to see how it's going. And after the campaign, we'll see how this really was integrated for them, that they're not only working on passing a proposition, but they're really growing and growing as spiritual people as well. So I'll end with that. That's one example of many of how through this modern Musar movement and devotional movement, we're able to connect both the interpersonal back with uh, the devotional and the pious. Um, And look forward to hearing what my uh, colleagues have to say. They'll open up and have discussion.
2: So I'm um, going to talk about how I came to Buddhism and some of the challenges that I've uh, faced as a convert. A little background, I uh, have spent a great deal of time as a Catholic most of my life, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. I attended uh, Catholic elementary school, Catholic high school, and then came to Boston and went to Boston College, so very steeped in this, this whole um, Catholic tradition, uh, and at one time, I lived in a convent and uh, also uh, was involved in a pre-entrance program for the um, Sisters of Notre Dame of, uh, in Connecticut. Uh, I grew up in Connecticut, and at that time, that I, when I grew up in Connecticut, there was a very active black Catholic uh, movement uh, and so one of the, one of the centers for that was St. Martin de Porres church, which is a school in the parish that, um, that I was, uh, I attended a church that I was actively involved. Um, so, uh, the transition to Buddhism, uh, was a little bit of a shock to me and probably to some other people, but in some levels it makes sense. Most of my life was spent as a devout Catholic going to mass kneeling to recite the rosary, finding my way to confession, praying for those suffering around the world, and putting quarters on the collection plate to support the little black Catholic congregation that provided safety and comfort to me as a child growing up. Each week, the priest counted the money and bought food and dry socks for the homeless men who sat on plastic crates in the vacant lot near the church. At night, they rang the church bell and asked for food and clean socks before searching for a place to sleep. This was and is still the Catholic brand. <clears throat> Showing up no matter who is in need, that's the brand. After nearly 40 years of devotion and service, things began to fall apart and a shift occurred in me. The deep faith and comfort that I experienced began to crack. As the church became more out of step, and overwhelmed with the suffering of people who filled the pews every Sunday. More talk about sin, no ordination of women to the priesthood, birth control, and divorced Catholics occupy the chatter at the Vatican that trickled down to us. I didn't plan to leave, but it happened. I was angry, frustrated, and lost. And so with the invitation of friends, I learned to meditate, and Buddhism became a refuge for me. Sitting on the cushion was about letting go of all that filled my mind and told me that I was sinful and needed to work for my salvation. Sitting was also about developing compassion for self and others and finding a path to liberation, free of judgment and and self-hatred. Over the past 20 years, I have embraced American Buddhism and learned to accept that my life began with original goodness, not sin. For this, I am grateful. American Buddhism has its own challenges as it develops in the U.S., distant from its Asian roots. Seen as a white, upper-middle-class spiritual practice where people largely sit and meditate has left people of color reticent to join. Like any other religious or spiritual tradition, issues of justice are not outside the door. They are deeply embedded within us and in the organizations, schools, workplace, in institutions we connect with every day. I continued my devotion to meditation practice in retreat centers around New England, looking for a new home, but became largely aware of the isolation, invisibility, and disconnection that I experienced. Of course, people were nice to me, but many of them never, had never closely interacted with a person of color. Sitting on cushions, we listened to Dharma talks or teachings about how the Buddha left a life of privilege came to understand suffering and began confronting the racism of the caste system and the ruling class in India. This is the foundation of Buddhism. We are simply missing the point if we merely sit on our cushions and not engage in the world. There is no liberation or path to freedom until we acknowledge injustice, understand the suffering of the oppressed, and commit to fight against all oppression. We can talk about injustice as if it is a thing beyond our reach. But if we get serious, we can start by beginning to care for each other in our deepest humanity. The Buddha once said, hate never yet dispelled hate. Only love dispels hate. This is the truth, ancient and inexhaustible. We don't have to search far to see, feel, and hear hate. It's everywhere. The question is, how can we practice, how can our practice help us in troubled times? In Buddhist practice, we learn not to avoid facing the pain of the human condition, but lean into the suffering of others and hold this suffering with compassion. Michelle Alexander, the lawyer, activist, and author of The New Jim Crow, and now professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York reminds us that there is something much greater at stake in justice work than we often acknowledge. Solving the crisis we face isn't simply a matter of having the right facts graphs, policy analysis, or funding, and I no longer believe we can win justice simply by filing, filing lawsuits, flexing our political muscle, or boosting voter turnout. <clears throat> yes, we absolutely must do that work, but none of it, not even working for some form of political revolution, will ever be enough on its own. Without a moral or spiritual awakening, we will, rem- we will remain forever trapped in political games, fueled by fear, greed, and the hunger for power. Thank you.
3: Good evening, everyone. So as you smile back at me, technically in the Islamic tradition, a smile is considered charity. (laughs) Many of you might have partners When you engage in relations with partners, this is considered charity. Now, it's not social justice, and can't exactly call it activism, but these words are a little bit foreign to the Islamic vocabulary. If I tried to map what is social justice onto foundational texts, I might come up with something like, "enjoin good, prohibit evil but then what is good and what is evil? This is the, the classic philosophical question. When I think about activism, on the other hand, this resonates deeply. But in the Islamic tradition, it's always about activism on one's own soul, even before it's about activism in the world. Now certainly you're going to go through the world and you wouldn't be a very upright Muslim if you walked past a person who's hungry while you yourself had food, or walked past a, a person you know, in, in need in some way while you yourself possessed the, the means to, to help them. And this is a great uh, dilemma uh, for many of my students as I work as a chaplain knowing, well exactly what, are my, what is my cause? What is my purpose in the world? I see suffering and injustice and I'm being trained in my university context to be you know, an activist or be a, a champion of social justice. And I see a deep disconnect between the awareness of all of the causes out there. And you know I resonate with this myself. Uh, knowing all of the causes out there and, and then sensing that one has to choose where to put one's time and resources. And so I brought this question to my own spiritual mentor, a chaplain's chaplain, if you will. And she says to me, beloved, you just ask God. You just ask Allah what? You know what God would like you to do and so there's this a very uh, at the same time there's an awareness of you must do cha- you must do charity you must feed the poor you must clothe uh, the naked etc there's also a sense that unless you're deeply in touch with your own life purpose and mission that you won't exactly know how to to best direct your efforts in the world uh, so it brings me back to the, the concept in, in Islam of, of naya, which means intention. And if I, for instance, feed a person and my intention is simply to help that person receive nourishment, well, I've missed an opportunity to also worship uh, you know turn this act into an act of worship. so it has to have this conscious intention behind it. Uh, and it goes the other way, too if you uh, accidentally uh, harm someone and your intention wasn't to harm them, well, you're judged on your intention. And so there's a the prophetic hadith that says actions are by intention. Uh, and certainly one intention is to do good, but then it can't be for the, the Muslim psyche divorced from this intention to reform the soul, please God, refine, uh, refine the character. I'm reminded of a very interesting uh, prayer, this is a hadith that is in the form of a prayer, and it essentially says, God, make the best of my deeds the last of my deeds. And so there's also this sense of a trajectory in life where you're constantly earning, um, earning the merit to be able to do more good in the world. Uh, there's another hadith saying, and this is a, what's called a hadith Qudsi, which means that the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, is, is narrating what he hears from, uh, uh, from God directly saying. And God will ask a person in, in the judgment, according to the Islamic belief, and say something along the lines of, I gave you gifts, okay? I gave you good, I bestowed favor upon you, what have you done? And the answer that you're ideally supposed to give at that time is to say, I multiplied what you gave me. Uh, and so you, between these two trajectories of sort of having the, the best of our actions be the last of our actions, uh, suggesting this life journey uh, and, and uh, purification, and between this concept of um, multiplying the good, you see that there, there really is some sort of path, some sort of, of, of trajectory. And no matter where a person uh, starts out, so for instance, if they have, and this is common in many other spiritual traditions, uh, if they have five dollars and give half of it, well that is, that's much more than, than a person who has much more wealth and, and uh, is able to give more wealth. So it's all it's all relative, but yet everyone is striving to multiply the good as it were. Uh, there's this complete also integration of activism and and uh, much much as you, you spoke David to uh, to make sure that you're as a, as a person engaging in good works, not letting those good works turn around and feed your own ego. So another common prayer is to say, uh, God, make, you know, elevate me in your eyes and make me sm- humble, make me small in my own eyes. Uh, there's also a hadith that says, uh, Ed, a benefactor, a warrior, and a scholar came before God and they were ready to receive their wards and God says to the scholar, no, you learned for the benefit so that people would say, look what a smart person you are. You know, to the benefactor, look what a generous person you are. To the warrior, look what a courageous person you are. And that was what you did it for and you got that and there's no more benefit left for whatever good you might have, have spread in the world. So this purifying of, of the self is really at the, the, the crux of the issue for me. Uh, now, I want to, of course, again, I don't want to say that it's all about the interior life, because certainly it, it, that's not the way I want to come off. But I want to actually stress the interior life, because I see oftentimes that, that that's maybe the thing that, that people of faith can bring to these conversations. And so I'll leave you with a uh, with a, a particular practice, and if you'll allow me, I'll just do a few moments of chanting so you, that you can actually have some type of experiential engagement with it. And this is a practice for restoration of, of justice and healing if you've been wronged or you've wronged someone. Now, ideally, you can uh, talk to that person and apologize to that person or uh, publicly announce that... that you've done something wrong, you know, public apologies have been in the news a lot lately, right? So ideally you're able to do that, but even if for some circumstances or some interior reason you can't do that, you can even, for someone who's wronged you, uh, ask forgiveness for them from God. And to me, this is the ultimate uh, level on which healing uh, has to occur because a person uh, can't fully maybe uh, a person who's been wronged can't fully uh, claim, their, claim their rights uh, unless they're actually uh, in, a, in a place where they've done some healing work themselves, uh, or else the, the wounds, the gaps, are, are just open uh, and, and not kind of sutured together. So this practice, it's, it's a practice of tauba, or tshuva in, in Hebrew, uh, and it's, it's a practice of, of returning. And the word means kind of turning and doing an about face. Uh, so it's to repeat over and over again like a mantra, a wa and you just repeat this over and over, and you're actually saying you're you're repenting yourself, but in that repentance, if you're having uh, the the other person's wrong in mind, the idea is that Allah might actually be able to touch their hearts. Uh, as well, and, and create a, a healing from that. So, thank you so much. I look forward to our conversations. There's so much more to say.
4: Hello, everyone. Can you hear me? I just want to give a few reflections from the perspective of a Catholic worker. I'm part of um, the Catholic Worker Movement that was co-founded by Dorothy Day. Maybe some of you heard Pope Francis when he was addressing uh, the U.S. Congress back in September 2015. He identified Dorothy Day as one of the four most important Americans. She's up there with Abraham Lincoln. so I, uh, I come from that little corner of the Catholic tradition, which, like all of the traditions rem- represented here, is immense. Uh, it's an aspect of... Or it's a movement that emphasizes... I'm just going to put this up a tiny bit because I'm so tall. Um, the incarnational theology of Catholicism. And... By that it's uh, I mean that if if Christ, as uh, the Christian Creed believes was an expression of God on earth, um, he he entered into the human experience this this incarnation, changes everything in in how we relate to the world um, and in our sacraments, um, the Catholicism is a sacramental tradition we have a, a way of recognizing God's entrance into those ordinary moments of human life when after a child is born in times of sickness when we get married when we um, if a man chooses to become a priest um, please god may that be open to women someday but here in these these very human moments we have the prayers these ancient prayers saying God is present in these events but the most um, significant, central, crucial, foundational sacrament, of course, is the Mass which Catholics uh, celebrate constant, you know, either daily or or weekly. And in that, um, I, I'm a convert, but um, we are believing, of course, that Christ it becomes, in that bread and wine, we are ingesting God. My husband, who's a cradle Catholic, he says you know it's a real miracle to believe that that little wafer and glass and wine is actually christ but this is this is the um the belief, and while the mass is deeply intimate experience, you really can't get um more intimate than than eating It is reminding us that um the journey to God is not—it's not private. It's not exclusive. If we think of piety and and the the development of an inner life of prayer, its purpose is to move us closer to God. This incarnational theology reminds us that all material in our daily life is is relevant to that quest. That it that it's not this ethereal uh, quest and and. We believe, I believe, that emerging from the Mass, we come out into the world with wider eyes, wider hearts, able to see what Dorothy Day referred to as the mystical body of Christ, the presence of God in all human beings and even in the earth itself. And this um, informs so much this sense of incarnational theology. Christ present in in all human beings informs the Catholic workers' opposition to violence and its commitment to the poor and interestingly, it was a Quaker um, artist that visualizes this perspective so so beautifully Fritz Eichenberg uh, he has he made many woodcuts that are used in um, the Catholic Worker, one of the Catholic Worker newspapers, but a more famous one is called Christ of the Breadline. And in this image, there are huddled and impoverished um, people in need standing in line for a bowl of soup. And in the very middle is an image of Christ. So this, this sense that um, we move toward the poor we move toward uh, life on the margins because here Christ dwells. Here is where you will actually find God. I think Mother Teresa's, uh there's a, there's a great image of her bathing a dying person in Calcutta. And um, the journalist is asking her, why do you bother? Why do you do this? The guy is going to die. And he is really about a breath away from death. And it's not Mother Teresa who's bathing. It's one of her nuns. And she says, Mother Teresa, uh, this is Christ. So this is an opportunity to touch Christ. So um, that has been emphasized very much in, in the Catholic Worker Movement. And I, I just came back from... Um, a, international gathering of Catholic workers which was held in Las Vegas of all places but uh, it was really a wonderful gathering and the poster um, commemorating our our gathering um, showed a work of art by uh, Rita Corbin the late artist Rita Corbin she's a graphic artist and in this piece she takes the works of mercy which are very familiar to Catholics, because Catholicism is a corporal tradition. Um, the, the works of mercy are something that all Catholics, if you know, they didn't fall asleep right through CCD, should know, because um, it, it is taken from the Sermon on the Mount. It, in, it, it gives very specific instruction on how you, what charity to do to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the imprisoned. Um, so Rita took this um, very familiar teaching, uh, which you know, Catholics know, and, and she juxtaposed it to the works of war. So the works of mercy are to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, give drink to the thirsty, visit the imprisoned, care for the sick, bury the dead. The works of war? Destroy crops and land, seize food supplies, destroy homes, scatter families, contaminate water, imprison dissenters, inflict wounds, burns, kill the living. So taking that traditional teaching and showing that you cannot practice the works of mercy when the works of war continue, expanding the the giving of mercy to include ending war so that we may literally bury the the dead Um, so I just want to shift for a moment on the second half of my reflection I've been speaking about how an incarnational theology can propel deep engagement with the world you know sense of responding to the to the marginalized but there is a paradox and I'm going to speak more from observation not experience Because if you look at the lives of prophets and saints and mystics, not just in the Catholic tradition, but in all traditions, these human beings who seem to have a very vibrant um, inner prayer life, it seems to me, at least in my humble opinion, that the deeper that they go into prayer, the more vibrant their antenna to the wrong of the world, what is not good about it to its unjust arrangements, its unholiness, its corruption, its um, its brutalities, its sacrileges, its blasphemies. And I think for some they move towards prayer and piety as preservation to keep away, to keep the world at bay. Right? Some, you know, migrate to deeper devotion because as, as preservation, um, because this is the only corner of holiness. Whereas others, and why these, this one chooses one and why the other, I don't know, it's a mystery. But others, the prayer, it's as if they move beyond the world being so divided, godly, ungodly, corrupt, you know, um, holy, sacred, profane, to seeing ultimate unity, the the presence. I I heard Merton speak on this. It's as if you push through to to the other side. And they live borderless existence. And the most dramatic examples are, are saints like Francis, Saint Francis, you know, the man spent hours in the cave, apparently, just praying and praying, and then he moves through a land divided by war. He moves through the Crusades in an utterly borderless manner. He goes and speaks with the the, the Sultan, um, Catherine of Siena, the mystic. After being in this in her room for, you know, three years, she she comes out. She inspires an order, and then she retreats into this interior period. And man, does she burst out and defy boundaries? She's chastising popes, she's a medieval woman, you know, she's, she becomes a doctor of the church, so this this fascinates and I hope we can touch upon it but I think that this capacity to find in, an, in deep prayer, the union, the presence of God in all gives stamina for the work of justice, makes the work of justice less about um, one over the other, but writing arrangements in a way that's not exclusive.
0: So, doing uh, my part to represent the uh, Protestant church, it's uh, it's right that I come last We're the youngest. <laughs> and uh, um, I'm gonna only represent uh, a small slice of it uh, that is my experience in uh, a largely uh, white progressive denomination, the United Church of Christ. And when I um, was first ordained, which was, uh, I did my schooling in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, when I was first ordained, um, we were cautioned against Piety. Uh, we were cautioned that piety was uh, effectively na- navel gazing, that meditation, prayer, uh, reading scripture, and the like were simply uh, escapes, and that the real work of the church was to do justice, and the great fear was that spirituality was incompatible with taking on that work. Uh, spirituality and piety were regarded as private and signs of a privatized perspective, um, and that wasn't always a wrong assessment either, but it was the Uh, a very overwhelming assessment, and particularly among uh, the churches of the elites and mostly whites, which the UCC uh, has uh, historically been, uh, the churches or members of those churches themselves were seen as the oppressors who had no right to spiritual nourishment for themselves or to look inward. They needed to get outside of the walls of the church and outside of the walls of their skin uh, so that they could see and be in a place that was more useful in the world. And to many, uh, and some of you may disagree with me about this, but I think in many of our traditions like that today, that still maintains. If you take a look at the uh, UCC website today, um, you will not find many resources on Prayer and devotion you will not find many resources on spirituality or Bible study um, But you will find a number of resources on the ways in which the church can reach out to those in need uh, that the uh, reach out for uh, Helping those who are in the midst of the disasters advocate for the poor of uh, the environment against racism homophobia free markets uh, and the like and every one of these uh, and unquestionably, are uh, extremely important and a part of our faith. But there still seems to be at least uh, a remnant of this feeling that that is, that, that um, commitment to those are mutually uh, is mutually exclusive with uh, spirituality. Uh, and so my question is: uh, Are they really mutually exclusive? And Uh, are there dangers in an activism uh, without spirituality? And for me, I'm going to turn to uh, the the work I know best on this, and a person whose credentials are far better than mine in terms of his activism, would be Dietrich Bonhoeffer, so I won't uh, have any... uh, feelings of repentance necessary for his uh, spirituality either, and some of this will resonate with what uh, Celine was talking about. Um, As as you know, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Protestant Christian in Germany, theologian, minister in the the 1930s, early 40s, uh, became part of the plot to assassinate uh, Adolf Hitler, Um, but he was also a deeply devoted man, and as part of his um, life trajectory uh, in the late 30s, he became the head of a seminary of the Confessing Church to um, take uh, young ministers in formation uh, through their final steps of preparation for ordination. And they did this in an in a, in experiment in communal living. Uh, And when he started this uh, experiment, uh, and he had looked at other uh, communities in in Britain and elsewhere, uh, he had to fend off a number of accusations that he was Catholicizing the seminarians um, and inducing a hothouse atmosphere that was esoteric and impractical. So you hear the resonances of what I was starting with. Uh, Bonhoeffer, um, though, was able to make it clear that, that it was their life together was not a withdrawal from the arena of combat against Nazism in the churches. And in his preface to life together, uh, he, he said that their life together was a unique way of preparing those young ministers to enter that combat and revitalize the church. Now, what did he mean by that? Bonhoeffer, as you might expect, was a close follower of Luther, and following him, he believed that the greatest flaw in the human condition was egotism. Uh, and already by the time of his second doctorate act in being, he recognized that the origin of human sinfulness was to be found in what he called the cur curvamense, the heart turned in upon itself, and thus open neither to the revelation of God nor the encounter with the neighbor in any real sense. For Bonhoeffer, the, the true self existed only in a deep, relationship, a relationship of humility and listening. For him, we actually do not exist except in relationship. And in that deep and humble listening relationship with God, which becomes then the model, and with another person, the only way we exist then is in human being is to be in that kind of relationship. That deep listening, Bonhoeffer felt, was developed in regular regular spiritual practices of prayer, meditation, reading scripture, and um, confession. He uh, often spoke of reading the Bible uh, as if God were speaking directly to us, and if any of you have saw the film Bonhoeffer that was done on the uh, the 100th anniversary of his birth, they, um, has one of his former students, as a, a wonderful woman, saying, he was different from all the other instructors, and he used to tell us, that's not the Greek, it's God speaking directly to you. <laughs> and, and he had that, that real sense. So a concern that I've had, um, with activism without this kind of listening or this kind of relating, this kind of humility, is that in terms that Bonhoeffer and Luther would use, that we risk this heart curved in on ourselves as though we are speaking for God. And this is, I think, where the danger is uh, of the activists who have not had that experience of having God speak to them. It's like I tell I used to tell my parishioners when I was in parish ministry if if you're praying and like you find out that you're 95% of the time God is agreeing with you, you might find out that you're talking to yourself. <laughs> and there's, I think there's that that sense that we, that we can become so self-righteous that we're talking to ourselves. Right? We can have we can we and the progressives can have as big an echo chamber as we accuse people on the on the right. So we risk an arrogance and a self-centeredness that actually undermines uh, the work for justice in a real way. So that's my concern. So thank you all. This is great uh, work. I hope you. <laughs> I will um, try to direct traffic, but uh, please, uh, we will take some time for questions and uh, conversation. If uh, any of you would like to address anyone on the panel, uh, we'd love to do that. Gordon.
1: Hi. First of all, thank you. All really
5: interesting. Um, I, I think that um, you know, Americans like finish line. And they sometimes have the assumption that if you're praying, you just need to get to the point where, you know, the light bulb goes off or you hit the finish line or something like that. And I'm just curious about what is the experience of um, a, a, a definite feeling that you're on to something or ongoing ambiguity? What is the experience that you have or that you would like to speak about that interior? Uh, experience
3: of prayer. <laughs> I'll just mention something very briefly and then maybe <clears throat> to take it some more depth. But, uh, one of the traditions I rely on quite regularly is that if you think about doing a good deed, that itself is credited as if you had done it. Now if you actually go do it, now you get credit for the intention and the actual execution of the deed. Uh, so there is there is merit, I think, in, in, in making plans and in setting the intentions, and even if it doesn't uh, necessarily materialize it, that the, the struggle to discern the good in itself is part of the, the process.
1: I have a practice called which in Hebrew means uh, it means seclusion. And it's a, uh, it's, a, it's a private prayer practice where you're speaking in the language that's most comfortable to you, uh, to God. And uh, one of my teachers, Rabbi Nachman of Breslev, uh, he teaches that we're constantly trying to discern God's will for us. And uh, there's this back and forth between our own will and identifying our own will. What we call Ratzon in Hebrew, and God's will. And it's, you're never there, exactly. It's, it's kind of like you're, you're in this, when you're in the process and speaking, and you're speaking out, uh, I'm speaking out to God. I'm trying to say, God, what, what is your will for me? And, I, and, and I'm trying to hear and, and see what that is. And then I'm trying to bring, well, this is my will. Like this is what I'm, you know, my will is here. And one of our ancient teachings is that you should try to make um, your will into God's will, um, and so that God will then um, uh, turn others people's wills away from you. And, and there's this, uh, this is kind of back and forth between my will and God's will. And it's like a Mobius strip kind of, like it's never, you're never exactly there. And just want to get to a point where maybe this is God's will, like, well, wait, is it my will? And then I have to speak it out more. So my response to you is that it's constant conversation and constant dialogue and, um, and, and never necessarily an ending point. Uh, there could be a moment where I'm saying, OK, I'm going to work with this as if it's I understand God's will right now, and I'm going to go with this assumption that this is what God wants. But that conversation never stops. And I have to keep bringing in, OK, what is my will? And where is that? Actually, lining up with God's will, or where is it? Kind of what Dudley was talking about. Where am I? Just kind of this is just what I want, and, and not necessarily what God wants for me. So that that's a process I use. So,
0: I don't. Before we go, do others want to address that? I, I would just say, Gordon, and this isn't so much a practice, but I, you know, over now a lot of years of living, I, I've like perhaps most people, uh, had a a lot of things that I thought would make me happy, Um, most of which, when I got them, didn't. And when I've reflected on those times that I feel really like it's connected, it feels as if what I'm wanting isn't so much a part of the picture, but there's just sort of a, 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 a deep kind of resonance. Maybe something like Fred Buechner said when he described ministry as being when uh, your your deep love or your deep passion coincides with the deep needs of the world, you know, something like that.
5: Mm
0: -hmm. Hope we have one here. I I don't
5: know if this is the... I hear what you're saying when you say activism is activism, true activism possible without spirituality but I feel that any of my activism comes only from spirituality so Mm I would say that is spirituality possible
0: without activism? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean I think yeah, real spirituality that's the question, right? I mean Claire brought up the the notion that you know some people seem to go in a in an escape. And maybe it's a matter of semantics, but I don't know. Claire, would you say that that, that was a a fake spirituality or?
4: No, I mean I <laughs> I I don't feel qualified to judge. I, I because I don't feel qualified to judge. It's just an, it was an observation, but I and. Uh, like you, understand God as wholly relational, not that people who go deeply into a more um, traditionally pietistic approach don't understand that. I think uh, it is influenced by their view of the world that they think that it is perhaps beyond redemption, not a place where God Dwells um, or only with a bit of a touch mm. of the toe. <laughs> um, so there's fear about that. Um. <coughs> okay. Yes, please. Um, I was going to ask I
5: suppose a little nervous of that in that um, I come from Britain and at the moment we have a real real problem with the association of religious organizations <coughs> and social justice. And it's actually quite difficult to get funding if you're a, religious organization. has a very negative view of what role it might play. To be fair, this is I, more in terms of international development, but I just wondered if you had any comment on that from the American perspective. I wonder if it was similar here, if people have that same reservation. Um, because it's you know increasingly here in the international development world that people are understanding that actually the help people need is, is as much spiritual and holistic as it is material. So increasingly religious but it's just quite difficult to get the public discourse to shift on that. You need to understand that.
3: But that's, that's a very much British issue. I don't know if it's similar here, or a, it's a, it's a great question. There's still question. a perception that religion is more a part of the problem than any possible solution. I, I, I think... Um, I, I can't really speak to that point as much, but before we lose this conversation, and then maybe someone else can tie it, tie it better together, uh, I, I think part of the, the the question that I ask myself is, does prayer have an effect? Does it matter? So, if you know, if I take you know an hour to pray intently for someone or for something, is this or is this not a form of, of activism? You know, if it's a, if it's a what we would frame as a social justice cause, does prayer help? Um, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll lay that question out there. But just to this kind of multiple ways of 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 holding uh, one's commitments in the world and 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 one's devotion, I'd also say that I think it you see people it, it go in and out of phases in life, uh, and kind of extending the benefit of of the doubt that maybe people are doing intense internal work you know, so that they can. Uh, uh, do the work in the world, and maybe sometimes the, the batteries or the energies are just strong to do the work in the world, but then ultimately I find a lot of times as a, as a religious leader that I'll be needing to recharge my own batteries, and that becomes difficult to do because then you're like an octopus with your hands and all of these different uh, projects. Uh, so I'll, I'll, you know, I'll put it out there. It's something I'm deeply thinking about as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I do think, just to to go to your question directly, there certainly have been lots of debates in the U.S. about funding for religious organizations doing social services with fear that they would bring uh, religion or proselytizing into the project. And so that, uh, I think that is a debate relevant in, in this country, and, and, it, and also in just in what kinds of voice it should have in the public square at all. And uh, with our celebrated separation of church and state, that's, that really raises that question. But I think it's it's very much alive here. I would
1: say certainly in uh, <clears throat> in the drug treatment world, uh, that's one specific area where there has been funding uh, and and you know secular you know governmental funding to religious
0: organizations doing that work. And there's been other areas as well, but, but that's one where it has. It. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there has been more, but it has been that controversy. Yes, please.
5: Um, because of that, I'm going to ask you first, you know, um, you, you mentioned the mentioned isolation and uh, disconnection. Um, and what you were talking about in relation to social justice seems to be uh, you're, you're suspicious of certain mechanisms, uh, maybe. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about you know, what I'm trying to figure out even what social justice is. I think all the panel. Mm-hmm. Uh, you all have sort of made these um, sort of allusions to the disconnection. Uh, What people are doing, what the intentions of what people are doing. And as you know, a person who is working class, you know, scholar, professional scholarship kid, kind of background, you know, it feels very social justice to me at least. Mm -hmm. I have a certain amount of suspicion towards it. It feels very top-down. It feels Mm -hmm. like people are either talking about serving the board You know, building a house in some
2: mission in Mexico or something, where international development is brought in So on. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about that—that isolation and disconnection—in relation to that. That's a great question. Yeah, it is. I think I was trying to point out the tension that I see in in. sitting in meditation and not relating to the people that are around you. That that not seeing those those people. They're invisible. A kind of color blindness. Um, I I social justice and spirituality go hand in hand for me. I mean I learned this as a little kid when I was in the Catholic Church. I mean this this is what you do. This is that you care for your neighbor, you care for your community. Uh, it, it is, I have to say, kind of odd to be in a community, uh, a Buddhist sangha, where uh, we meditate or ha- and then have conversation afterward and people talk about social justice as though it's right out there. And we have a community that's almost all entirely white. Uh, and that we are not we are. They are now beginning to uh, look at their their privilege, white privilege that they have, and what they're going to do with it, or if they want to do something with it. So, uh, the disconnect is that when, when there's you know conversations about oppression, racism, uh, I feel it. I'm I'm living it, and so I'm intimately involved with that and. Uh, I think changing it for me has to be inside and outside, it's not one or the other, it's, it's doing both things. But we've had a long conversation about social justice in this country and it's, 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 uh, it's like one of the hip things to say, uh, it's a hip thing to, to be in conversation with, but are we really gonna do something? And I feel like this, particularly now where we are, we have the perfect storm with all the things that have come together around this election, I'm not talking about any particular candidate, because it really in some ways, I mean, the candidates have kind of maybe escalated the conversation, but we've been moving toward this path for a very long time. And uh, we have uh, been doing some things that really have gotten us here, uh, not quickly, but I I thought we would be here a little bit sooner. Uh, I think people forget about the whole dot com. Era of the 90s when lots of people got rich. And so when you start having conversations about the 99% and the 1%, that's, that's your 1%. You know, those are the folks that really, I don't know, I was asleep at the wheel probably. I don't know what I was doing, but I wasn't, you know, working in Silicon Valley or here in Massachusetts working at a startup in which, you know, I made a lot of money. But uh, I was talking about this with some of the people in my class, this anti racism class, that until we really. Um, get a handle on capitalism, it's going to really be hard to shift racism and all the other things that flow out of it. And so that's, that's, you know, that's where the conversation has to begin. But you know we're all at different points. Uh, and I t- I've been thinking a lot about and talking a lot about compassion because I think that uh, that's, that's the heart and soul of it. And, this, and I'm in this place now, and I think meditation has helped me to get here because I was very angry for many, many years about... The social structures that I saw and our inability to get a handle on them, uh, but until we're able to really bring compassion to the work that we do and the conversations that we do, and really see each other uh, in our deepest humanity, I, I you know, we we've, we've got a long way to go because that that to me is the starting point. So, mm-hmm.
4: in. Uh- in the Catholic tradition, there's a body of teaching called Catholic Social Teaching, and they give very explicit description of what just arrangements look like at an, in, mm-hmm. in the economy, um, especially around labor. Um, they're very, um, you know, this world-centric documents in terms of what what's the fair... Fair way to, to treat each other, and they've evolved, often uh, emerged out of you know political or social crisis, and then developed a response. But what does social justice actually look like, and whether people adhere to the you know these teachings is another matter. But two vignettes that came to mind when you asked your question: I was in Mumbai in 2004 covering the World Social Forum, and uh, this is you know meeting of P, uh, many people's movements from all over the world. And there, I went to an afternoon workshop given by women who are, excuse me, in my language, but this is how, but they're, they're called shit sweepers. And they, they clean the bathrooms, the public latrines in India. And they're um, of the Harijan class, their lowest class, um, lowest work, lowest, 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 lowest. And they um, marched in the big, you know, people's procession at at the forum, and then they gave this workshop. And um, accompanying them were Jesuit priests and they were accompanying the women, but very um, in the background. And it was a woman who took the podium and described her conditions, described her um, hardships. And in the very back of the room you know, was, the, was a priest. And I thought, this is very good. Um, mm-hmm. And I felt this woman, somebody had given this woman a sense of her dignity. And so this realization of one's own dignity and being able to articulate it is, you know, for me, um, what social justice looks like. Another vignette, and this is a much more traditional example, Phil Berrigan is a, you know, uh, the late Phil Berrigan was a former Catholic priest very known for his burning of draft files during the Vietnam War. But he was also a huge voice for opposition to nuclear weapons. And I asked Phil... Once, so when did this happen? You know, when did you become conscientiousized to speaking out about nuclear weapons? And I thought he was going to say in the 80s when, you know, most of the country was turning to that issue. He said it was when he was a Josephite priest and during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he was serving down in New Orleans. And when that crisis erupted, he had people around the block. Coming to confession because they thought they were going to die. So that was a very traditional role that he played as a priest, but it made him furious, absolutely furious, to see the desperation of these people and that their fate, as he put it, would be decided either by two human beings, Kennedy or Khrushchev. So there was the, a, a kind of rage that, you know, trans into, um, you know, a life committed to disarmament. But I think, I think that perspective came out of his own interior prayer life, his own immersion in the prophets, his own. You know, another priest might have just said, "My function that day was to get through as many confessions as I could," because basically, these people thought they were going to die, and um, so I think. Social justice looks like that. It's that larger view of, I don't, I'm, I'm not explaining that one well. <laughs> um.
0: uh, that's, uh, you know, that uh, top down is, I think, part of the thing that I was uh, getting at in the in the white progressive church. I think that's been that, uh, that's been its role. There's been a, a lot of um, feeling that, you know. W- we've got everything we that we need and we should go help people, right? And there was very little relationship or understanding or really anything other than this idea that, that, that we were well off and other people weren't and it didn't really leave room for them to be seen as human beings. That's part of what I think is the problem without having some kind of an interior life where you get a, a, a both, uh, uh, a more connection with oneself, but also you can live with a lesser opinion of yourself, you know, and then be in, in relationship in a way that isn't maybe quite so top down, but it's a big problem, it's a big problem.
1: Okay, I just want to address something on that, uh, that we have, a, uh, we have an invisible God who sees all and this idea of invisibility and seeing, I think, is central in the Jewish understanding of social justice. Mm-hmm. And that there's a, one of our mystical stories is that the creation of the world was God. Um, it was, everything was oneness. And there was no space for relationship. And so mm-hmm. God wanted to be in relationship. So God contracted God's self to make uh, space. But that space was vacated. It was an empty space. And all creation happens within that empty space and God poured God's light into vessels that were there to create, make creation, and those vessels shattered from the light because the light was too great. And so all light um, from God is hidden now in those shards of those vessels, and that makes up all creation, everything. Me, you, the chairs, the, our thoughts hmm. are all those shards that have hidden light within them. And our task in the world is to reveal that light, to kind of see it in there, and we do that by seeing by really seeing and seeing the other. And so very central to Jewish social justice is seeing the unseen. Just like our task is to see a God that's unseen, is to see people that are unseen. Or if you're unseen, <laughs> like how do you become seen? Mm-hmm. And that's, and the social arrangements we have that keep people unseen is part of the hiddenness of God. Mm-hmm. And the, world, the word we have for universe or world in Hebrew, olam, uh, is hidden, means hidden. And so the whole process is about uh, recovering and seeing, and so that is what Jewish social justice is: is creating social arrangements where people are maximally seen, and we can see each other and be in relationship. That's a magnificent story. Wow! I didn't make it up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I find, or I'm uh, struggling at times in my own experience with social justice activism that. At times there is the other, and then there is also the other other. And I was struck,
1: Professor Giles, by your um, emphasizing the importance of compassion in effective or, or meaningful social justice activism. I, I wanted to ask: Were you referring primarily to
0: compassion for um, the victim of injustice, or including that? Uh,
2: imperative, the perpetrator of injustice. Yes, both. And compassion for oneself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in terms of interfaith, a lot of this work around compassion comes from, uh, I mean, obviously Buddhism is 200, you know, uh, 2,600 years old, but also major figures like Dorothy Day, uh, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, there were a number of people that, that uh, for whom uh, compassion was part of, of, of how they saw justice in the world. Uh, I used to say social justice, I don't say social justice because we're also talking about economic justice, right? Mm-hmm. In some cases, and other types of justice. So I just, I'm, I just sort of think of it as, as justice. Mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm. I think we have, yes. Uh, so I you can go uh,
0: I couldn't, I was taking notes, and uh, I couldn't help uh, not
5: just the similarities uh, I was just thinking that the, the rabbi talked about building oneself as a vessel for God. Then when we talked about Buddhism, we talked about leaning into the suffering of others. Mm-hmm. In Islam, you give the example of, this uh, is a social in one, one of the gospels, I don't know which one, but by giving a coin, them, them, you support the to of and not know, just giving the soul and the people. The um, so there's all the similarities to, But I'm wondering, as an introverted person, um, I'm wondering whether we also have to take into account that um, through piety and prayer, the world changes. I mean, you go to mass, if you have a mass, the water, the holy water has changed. You know, because they've done tests. I mean, you can do mountains by praying. You can do so much. So you don't necessarily have to go out there and just do stuff for. With what you see, I mean, there's more to the world than just what you see, mm-hmm. and I think when it comes to activism, you can be very passive but extremely active at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I'm
1: wondering, what do you have anything to say about that? Mm-hmm. I think it's a great question, a great thing to talk about. It's not. Um, um, I'll say a couple of things, but I think it's. I think the question is probably better than the answers. Uh, the um, Rabbi Nachman, who I've said before, he called prayer the gentle weapon. And it was, and through, through, really, we have a belief that really through prayer you are, you can you know, change things. And our mystical tradition, where that story that I just told comes out of, um, really believed that through certain meditations we would make to unify God's, uh, God's feminine masculine self and bring together. That's how we actually see these sparks and, and raise them up. Um, Honestly, I can't help but think some of that came from a deep feeling of being oppressed. And that developed in, and I don't want to reduce it to this, uh, but a lot of that thinking developed in response to first the Roman oppression of the Jews about 1800, 1900 years ago, and then the um, Spanish expulsion uh, from Spain and, and the exile from there, and it was a deep despair. Uh, in the Jewish world at that time, we're talking about the uh, late 1500s, 1600s, and and that was when a lot of this theology developed. Of uh, that we can do, t- do actually the term Tikkun Olam, which is in Jew means repair of the world, is an old old term, but it took on this new meaning of transformation, change in the world. It was really about these prayer meditation practices came out of the expulsion from Spain, and so I just I struggle with that that a feeling of a people who was just so beaten down. They're saying, okay, well, we still do have power through our meditations and through our prayers and we can change things because out there in the world, we, we can. not um, Does that mean there's not that power there? I think there is, but it, I don't think it's complete. I have a question. First of all, thank you so
5: much for the passion and the candor that you bring to the conversation. <coughs> And I am intrigued, particularly by the, the notion that your last sentiment that you um, you spoke of in, in your comment. And um, and I particularly think about it in the context of Mother Teresa's you know, her and her diary, the writings mm-hmm. and the kind of struggle that she went through um, for all the amazing work that she did that her, her, her struggle with mm. wanting to feel God in her years, wondering where God was, and clearly seeing God and the people to whom she was ministering, but not feeling God for this What do you think about that, and how does that speak to the issue
4: that you raised? Well, I'll tell you what my husband said. Okay. <laughs> he said, can you... I was... When this came out the the, the the revelation that you know Mother Teresa, as you were referring to, had pretty much fifty years of a dark night, no no tangible experience of Christ, my husband said, "Can you believe it? God is a no show for Mother Teresa <laughs> so um, that's one reaction i yeah it's challenging it's challenging, but I, I think it's connected to what your question and your observation that isn't justice also pushing away despair and that that's a fundamental part of it and prayer is is the means that you know re- religious people are doing so i think f- for her how could she not despair given the you know what she observed day by day by day anybody that sits in places of such you know unceasing ceasing suffering it's it's the big it's the big monster at the door so I think all justice requires somehow true deep justice keeping despair at least at bay and that is done in, in, in prayer. I don't know if that answers your question directly, though. But um,
0: we have time for one more, and then we have snacks and books in the back. And uh, so, if we, please.
5: In my background is into, uh, so for uh, sort of question. So uh, I'm a scientist now. And you, Probably are aware of the challenges that scientists have in communicating with the uh, general public, if you uh, especially when it comes to uh, sometimes uh, groups people who themselves. Uh, what is your observation about that communication, that lack of understanding, of course, at both sides? With, uh, what do you think, what's your advice, if you like? Um, you, you don't issue, you know, a big example, a very small example. This communication doesn't happen. But it, I believe as the science is crucial, because I go to lab every day come home, I see all the big people, big people, do big words. But then it's for people. And this communication doesn't happen. What's your, what's your thought on this? <laughs> Please, go. OK. I'm very pleased everyone.
3: I, I think I'll take it more more broadly rather than just thinking about science but the, that lack of communication um, I, I think in in many ways it's what you were maybe pointing to by sitting being able to sit next to someone but but not really be able to maybe communicate deeply like that um, The the thing I maybe want to, to say to connect it to this this panel is that uh, justice looks different for different communities. And I think maybe as a larger, on the to-do list, the mega to-do list, is considering it maybe part of justice to be in conversations, civil conversations, uh, with people who are radically different about you know, what What are their intimate experiences, and what does justice look like uh, for for them uh, and i I find myself that that's really hard to do and i didn't realize maybe to the extent um, in which i i wasn't listening myself, even coming through training where you're 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 trained to be a listener and to be present and to Uh, and then I think so starting maybe with realizing our own barriers to communication
0: in the uh, uh, church that I served uh, many years ago there was uh, around the time of the Vietnam War there was a a young guy in the church who um, was very sure that he knew what to do uh, about the war and was very vocal about it And, and he had a lot of very good ideas but he also had a very obviously nasty relationship with his wife, and there were people in the congregation who, who just, you know, on either side of that particular issue, just took note of that, and said, "Why should I believe that he knows how to, to solve these big relationships if he can't even manage this small relationship at all?" and, and does it with such kind of haughtiness and, and uh, a lack of awareness?" And so to me that, that that's always been a great reminder that you know there's a, has to the, you can't pretend to do one uh, if you're not doing the other. All right, well, thank you all very much. And David, thank you. <clears throat>